This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books, torts, cases, and contexts, volumes one and two, by Eric E. Johnson. The case books are published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. This means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the author for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Torts Lectures. This is lecture number seven, and in this lecture, we'll be talking about affirmative defenses to negligence. There are three ways for a defendant to win a negligence case. First and easiest, the defendant can just stand by as the plaintiff fails to put on evidence to prove each of the prima facie elements. If that happens at trial, the defendant can successfully move for a directed verdict, thereby winning the case without putting on a single witness or, theoretically, even without asking a single question of any of the plaintiff's witnesses. Assuming the plaintiff puts on a prima facie case, the second way for a defendant to win is to make out a rebuttal defense. A rebuttal defense is established by offering evidence to rebut the plaintiff's evidence for one or more of the prima facie elements established by the plaintiff. The third and final way for a defendant to win is to prove an affirmative defense. Even if a plaintiff makes out a prima facie case, and even if the defendant has no rebuttal evidence whatsoever, the defendant can still obtain victory by proving an affirmative defense. Sometimes an affirmative defense will affect a complete victory for the defendant. Other times, an affirmative defense will affect a partial victory, shielding the defendant from some portion of the damages. There are three main affirmative defenses that are particular for negligence claims. Contributory negligence, comparative negligence, and assumption of the risk. The first two affirmative defenses, contributory negligence and comparative negligence, work by pointing the finger back at the plaintiff and blaming the plaintiff's injury on the plaintiff's own negligence. Contributory negligence and comparative negligence are alternatives to one another. Most jurisdictions have the defense of comparative negligence. The few that do not have the contributory negligence defense. The defense of assumption of the risk is just what it sounds like. The plaintiff agreed to shoulder the risk that something would go wrong. So when it does, the plaintiff cannot come to the defendant for compensation. Now moving to contributory negligence. 
The doctrine of contributory negligence holds that if the defendant can prove that the plaintiff's own negligence contributed to the injury that the plaintiff complains of, then the defendant is not liable. To be more exact, proving a case for contributory negligence involves proving that the plaintiff's conduct fell below the standard of care a person is expected to adhere to for one's own good, and that such conduct was an actual and proximate cause of the injury that the plaintiff is suing on. To break the defense of contributory negligence into elements, we can start with the elements of negligence. To review, those are owing a duty, breaching the duty, actual causation, proximate causation, and the existence of an injury. It generally goes without saying that a person owes a duty to oneself, so there is no need to have an existence of duty as an element. Similarly, there is no point in discussing the existence of an injury since the occasion for asserting the defense will never come up unless there is an injury. So we can break contributory negligence down into three elements. One, breach of the duty of care, actual causation, and proximate causation. In practice, issues of contributory negligence generally revolve around the breach element. The idea of last clear chance is that if, despite the plaintiff's negligence, the defendant has a last clear chance to avoid the injury, then the defendant must seize that chance to prevent the harm. If the defendant doesn't, the defendant will be liable, the plaintiff's negligence notwithstanding. Last clear chance applies when there is a particular temporal sequence to the plaintiff's and defendant's negligence. First, the plaintiff does something negligent, creating some perilous situation. Next, the defendant has a chance to avoid injury to the plaintiff by being careful. Then, the defendant omits to take the precaution, and injury results. This chronological order is essential. Without it, the last clear chance doctrine will not apply. Now moving to comparative negligence. Comparative negligence, also commonly called comparative fault, because it has applications in tort law beyond negligence claims, is a partial defense. It allows a defendant to escape some portion of the damages under certain circumstances on account of the plaintiff's negligence. Generally, the jury is required to determine the relative fault between the parties in the form of percentages. The reduction in damages is then done by multiplying the total damages by the relevant percentage. So if a jury finds that the plaintiff is 1% at fault, that the defendant is 99% at fault, and that the plaintiff suffered $100,000 in damages, then the plaintiff's recovery will be reduced by $1,000, meaning that the defendant will be liable for $99,000. That is a simple example, but comparative negligence gets much more complicated. The complications arise from the many variables 
that allow the doctrine to be very different from one jurisdiction to the next. As a result, there are a myriad of versions of comparative negligence. The first and most important variable is whether there is a threshold quantum of the plaintiff's negligence beyond which the defendant has a complete rather than partial defense. The version called pure comparative negligence has no threshold. Whatever percentage the plaintiff is negligent, that is the percentage by which the plaintiff's recovery is reduced. For instance, if the plaintiff is determined to be 99% negligent, then the recovery is reduced by 99%, and the plaintiff can only recover 1% of the compensatory damages from the defendant. In such a case, the plaintiff is, in the judgment of the fact finder, almost entirely to blame for her or his own injury, yet a small amount of recovery is still possible. The perception among some courts and lawmakers is that it would be unfair to allow recovery in such a situation, where the plaintiff is mostly to blame. This has led to a form of the doctrine known as modified comparative negligence, also known as partial comparative negligence. In this form, if the plaintiff's negligence meets or exceeds some threshold, then the plaintiff is entirely barred from any recovery. In essence, there is a reversion to contributory negligence. How this threshold works differs greatly among jurisdictions. In some jurisdictions, the plaintiff is allowed recovery subject to reduction so long as the plaintiff's fault is not more than the defendant's fault. Other jurisdictions say that the plaintiff is allowed recovery subject to reduction so long as the plaintiff's fault is less than the defendant's fault. Notice that either way, the threshold is 50%. The difference is what happens in the event of a tie, where the jury determines that both the plaintiff and the defendant are each equally at fault, assigning 50% of the responsibility to each. The more popular version of modified comparative negligence is the more plaintiff-friendly one the one in which the plaintiff can still recover if fault is apportioned 50-50. The more defendant-friendly rule, where equal fault means the plaintiff is denied all recovery, is the less popular version. So we have two main versions of modified comparative negligence, distinguished by what happens in the event that the plaintiff and the defendant are equally at fault. Now moving to assumption of the risk. The affirmative defense of assumption of the risk provides that defendants can avoid liability where plaintiffs have voluntarily taken the chance that they might get hurt. One way to think about assumption of the risk is in relation to the prima facie elements of a negligence claim. Where plaintiffs assume the risk, they relieve defendants of their duty of due care. The label assumption of the risk is applied by courts to many different situations. There are two broad categories, however, that form an important division, implied and express. Implied assumption of the risk comes about when plaintiffs, by their conduct or actions, show that they have assumed the risk. Express assumption of the risk results from an explicit agreement in words 
written or oral, assuming the risk. Assumption of the risk, whether of the implied or expressed type, can be broken down into two elements. One, the plaintiff must know and appreciate the risk, including its nature and severity. Two, the plaintiff must take on the risk in an entirely voluntary way. These requirements are quite strict. To show knowledge, it is generally not enough for the defendant to show that the plaintiff should have known about the risk. There generally must be proof that the plaintiff actually knows about the risk. And it is not just knowledge that is required, but real understanding and appreciation. In other words, plaintiffs have to really know what they are getting into. To put it in more formal terms, the standard is a subjective one, looking at what the person actually understood, rather than an objective one, which would look at what the person should have understood given the circumstances. The standard for voluntariness is quite strict as well. There must be a genuine choice if a plaintiff is to be held to having assumed the risk. If it is the case that the plaintiff was compelled by circumstance and had no reasonable choice other than to confront the risk, then it does not count as voluntary for purposes of assumption of the risk doctrine. Similarly, if a plaintiff's only choice to avoid the risk is to forego a legal right, such as enjoying one's own property, then there is no voluntariness. In the case of Marshall versus Ran, a plaintiff who was attacked and bitten by his neighbor's boar was held not to have assumed the risk by walking out of his own house. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.